Uh, it was great to uh, hear that singing. It was so much fun. Uh, we're excited about the possibilities. It's, it's, I think it's going to be a super probability because I've been praying really hard for it. <laughs> and God's been answering a lot of our prayers. Uh, we love the little church we're serving in Racine. Uh, it's going to be a great sacrifice if this all works out for us to lead them. Uh, uh, we've tried really hard to fall in love with any church we've ever been involved with. Uh, because that's what Christianity is all about, right? Uh, people loving one another deeply. So, um, so pray for us. Pray that this last interview with the young people goes really well. Those are the people I'm afraid of. Uh, so I'm just kidding. But uh, anyway, let's pray uh, uh, because I have a lot to cover in just a few minutes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Ephesians. Uh, every chapter, every word, every phrase, paragraph is so rich about you and about us and what you want to do and how you want to unite us all into one soul again in the future, whatever that means. And I pray that I can do a good job with my assignment today. Uh, I pray it's easy to follow. I explain it well um, so that uh, we can, again, uh, be strengthened by the richness of the truths in this letter. Thank you so much uh, for our time together, and it's through your son's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 17, or you can just look at the screen. I guess the passage is going to be up there. Uh, I'm starting in John 17 because uh, John 17 is the greatest prayer that was ever prayed. No question about it. It's the prayer Jesus prayed right before he died on the cross. If you want to know what the Bible's about, go to John 17. That's, if you want to know why Jesus died for us, go to John 17. And you'll find out, oh, this is what God wants more than anything else. So in John 17, uh, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation today, which is not my habit. It's not my favorite version, but for the verses today, it actually does a really good job. So, John 14, 15, 17. I can count. John 17, verse 20. I am praying, I'm just going to read it off there. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Uh, I pray that they will be all, they will all be one, just as you and I are one. That's really heavy, isn't it? As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. That's heavy. I in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Ooh. Such a great passage. That's what the Bible's all about. And especially that's what Ephesians is all about. It's all about making us one again. In some weird, strange, unexplainable way, we're all going to be one soul again when we get to heaven. You go, that doesn't even make sense. Well, it doesn't. But somehow God's going to pull that off. 
And it's going to be richer than anything you've ever been blessed with in this life. It's, you're going to experience a joy you've never even tasted in this life. When we all get to heaven and enjoy our unity with God and each other. I want to read my favorite quote. I'm not a big quote person uh, because why quote people when you can quote the Bible, right? The Bible's always better. But this is, this is an amazing quote about who God is. We can't become image bearers, and that's what the book of Ephesians is all about. It's about becoming image bearers again. Imaging the God who is three, but really is one. God is not a single person, an individual in cool detachment from other persons. God is three persons in the deepest possible communion with each other. They have quite separate identities. The Father is the Father not the Son or Spirit. The Son's identity is His alone. He is never Father or Spirit. And the Spirit's self is unique too. These persons are more distinct from each other than we can begin to understand or imagine. They don't merge or blend into a single personality. And yet, they are so intimate to each other, so present within each other, that they are only one God, not three. In their knowing and loving of each other, they hold nothing back for themselves. The father abandons his entire self to his son and spirit, and the son and the spirit do the same, and the church is supposed to do the same. The love that circulates among them is so perfect that their communion with each other is perfect too. That is the kind of God we believe in. We cannot understand such unity among such distinctive persons. But that is the mystery we believe. The mystery of God, the mystery of Christ. The book of Ephesians is all about the mysteries. Ephesians has two ways that God unveils his mystery plan for oneness. There's two ways, okay? And um, the first way, you've pretty much already covered, I'm guessing, in, uh, in, the, in the four chapters. So the first four chapters, four and a half chapters, actually, of the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about how through the church, he's going to reveal um, uh, 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 oneness to the world. He's, gonna, he's in the church, he's going to bring in Jews and Gentiles, in other words, the Jewish people and everybody else in one family. And, and, and you're going to have all these different kinds of people, and they're, they're going to love each other. They're going to be crazy about each other. They're not going to be just in the same room, right? You can be in the same room and not like that person that sits over In fact, maybe that's why you're sitting over there and they're sitting over there because they don't like each other. And when you meet each other, ever experienced this? I have. And you meet each other and you go, oh, I'm going to go fellowship uh, Chris because I don't want to fellowship Herman because you don't like Herman and Herman doesn't like you. And that's not acceptable in God's church. Because that means you're not bearing the image of God, the one we just read about. You're not being a John 17 Christian. You're not being a crucified Christian is the real issue. You know, when you get to Ephesians 2, uh, he says there's a peace plan that God has provided for the church. It's Jesus, right? 
don't answer too quickly. It's not Jesus. It's the crucified Jesus. The world loves preaching Jesus without the cross. It's called the cheap grace Jesus. That's the Jesus that most of evangelical Christianity preaches. That Jesus doesn't unify anybody. That Jesus lets, you, lets that guy back th- I'm not pointing to you, okay, brother. <laughs> that guy over there and this uh, person over here, he lets them go ahead and live that way. Because, you know, the cheap grace Jesus doesn't expect very much. But our Jesus, the Jesus of the Chippewa Valley Church, is the crucified Jesus. So that person and that person have to find a way to get along and love each other, and forgive each other, and understand each other, even if they don't agree with each other. You know, you guys, um, you guys have a really awesome leadership group here. Because they don't, they don't all think alike. They don't, they're really different. And they're all really opinionated. I noticed that. <laughs> and I am too, and so is Kelly. I mean, I described my wife yesterday at our interview as kind of a bottle of hot sauce. <laughs> We're opinionated. But you know what? If you push the crucified Jesus in the middle of a room of opinionated people, they get along. In fact, God loves to work in that environment where uh, Joel Pete has his convictions because he's worked and studied for so long. And, and Kelly Sandin has convictions because she's been around for a long time. And then you got young people in there too, like Stevie Sandin, Sandin Stevie Wood, sorry. Uh, and she's, she's another bottle of hot sauce. And, and you got to get along with the young people and give them all kinds of respect too because Jesus did. And it, that's the way it works here. That's the way it is back in Racine. It's beautiful. You know, I've had my opinion. I'm a real opinionated guy, but I've had them changed because, and they're better now because of what young people have said, or women have said, or a fellow minister has said, or or a Chris Moose or some, or a Peter Smith or who. And I'm like, wow, this is so rich and so good, and I need these people in my life. And that's what a crucified Christian thinks like. I'm, that's my cross, okay? All right, I didn't know. Oh, he's holding a big baby. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's my cross, okay? All right? So uh, anyway, all right. So that's, that's literally kind of what Paul's talking about in the first part of Ephesians, the first four and a half chapters. Church, this is how you image me. This is how you reflect me. And, and that's why when you get to chapter 4 and 5, he really goes, gets really practical about how do you really live this out with people that are very, very, very different than you. I'm looking at this crowd, and I'm sure the crowd out there watching us, you know, they're just as diverse as this crowd is, okay? Uh, if we do come here... Ye- well, you have at least one petrified dinosaur coming, so I'm <laughs> really different than a lot of you young people. Uh, but anyway, amen? Does that make sense? God's mysteries are revealed through a spirit-filled, crucified church. You know what the spirit wants to do with us? Crucify us. If you want to know what the spirit wants to produce in your life, death. 
Ooh, that doesn't sound very good. Actually, it does, because death leads to resurrection in, in the family of God. And you will be resurrected as a brand new, unifying, powerful person that can bear much fruit in your family group, in the church. Every one of us. Okay? But you have to let the Spirit work the wisdom of the cross in your life. Okay? In all your relationships. That's what the Spirit was given to do. What a privilege to have the Spirit of God. None of our Old Testament brothers and sisters had that beautiful advantage. Now, I don't know why I didn't even look at my notes, but let me just say this. The Spirit wants to produce the real Jesus in us, the crucified Jesus, because we are to be image bearers. Jesus was the most unifying person that ever lived. It may not appear that way, but for people that want to follow him, absolutely. You know why? Because the human Jesus, and he was fully human, even though he is fully God, set aside, set aside all the advantages of being God even though he remained God. That's Philippians. Jesus was always selfless. Always. He was always crucified. He was crucified before he was crucified. You can't find a moment in his life where he wasn't selfless or sacrificial or humble. Jesus, who co-created the universe with God, was always humble. He had no ego at all. It's ludicrous for any man or woman to be prideful because you couldn't even create a toothpick. Right? Oh, yeah, I could, you know. Get a lathe and... Uh, where would the tree come from? You can't create a toothpick. Not even that guy back there. So why would we ever be prideful? We should be the most humble people on the face of the planet and loving. Jesus was always loving. He never grew numb. No matter how much the bride of Christ through the ages has hurt him, he never, ever, ever grew apathetic, even a little bit, never grew numb. He's always loving. In an all, even on the cross, he was loving people. He carried his cross on the cross. And that's what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in us. And then we can become his image bearers. Then we can start to see a oneness that the world has never seen. Or only seen a few times. The second way that God unveils, so through the church, okay? The first way that God unveils mysteries about what he's doing with his people is through the church. The second way the most profound way that God reveals mysteries is through crucified Christian couples. And that's, this is, he says something really amazing in Ephesians 5. He says, this is the most profound part of God's mystery. This is the greatest part. Because what he shared through four and a half chapters is, God's comprehensive plan to unite all people from the world together. 
But now he's going to talk about the closeness of the relationships. And they're imaged in a crucified husband and a crucified wife. But what they're supposed to do, what Steve and Kelly are supposed to reflect, is, is how close Jesus is or can be and definitely will be with his bride, the church, after Jesus comes back and after we're finally married to him. You go, that's a theme in the Bible. That's the number one theme in the Bible about who Jesus is. Is that we, he is our bridegroom king. That's the number one picture. I can prove that if you have another hour, but we don't. So then I have to come another time. But that's the number one picture. The world started with a wedding. The world's going to end with a wedding. Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist as the bridegroom. That's John 3.29. His first miracle in John 2 was at a wedding. That wasn't an accident. And he sat there with his apostles for over a week, because that's how long weddings were. And he said, see those two unashamed lovers up there? That is the first picture. That's the picture of the kingdom. And that's the bride of God, I mean, the bride of God and God himself. Don't forget that picture. Peter, James, John, as they sip the new wine that he made. He goes, don't ever forget that because we're going to suffer a lot to rebuild, to replant Eden, to make this world one again to unite heaven and earth again. We're going to have to suffer a lot. Don't forget, see those joyous people up there? They're image bearers. They're, 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 they're giving us a better picture of God than you've ever seen in your entire lives. Next wedding you go to and you see that bride and groom up there, just go, oh, that's the, the, the groom, you know, the doors open, and the groom go. <laughs> I know Joel's pride at his wedding. <laughs> I just love it. I was, at, I was doing a wedding one time, this mountain of a man, football player, and the bright doors open. And, <laughs> and I go, that's Jesus. And the bride is radiant. That's the church. And you just wait until we go to heaven. All right. I better get to my notes. All right. This is the greatest part. Okay, so let's, uh, let's, uh, what's the next slide? All right, I'm going to read this. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit wants to crucify us. Sounds bad, but it's really good. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Next slide, please. All right, so that passage is deeper than you think. Now, I didn't know this for a lot of years. But that, that passage talks about how we get filled with the Spirit or how we get crucified in a very joyous way. And, it, and, and the, there's a command in there. It, 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 be filled with the Spirit is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, oh, I hope it happens someday. No, he says, do it. Get filled with the Spirit. Well, how does that happen? We speak 
There's five participles that spin off the command. We speak or instruct one another with the songs of the poetry of the Bible. Why the poetry of the Bible? Because that's where you see the heart of God. Places like the Song of Songs and the Psalms and even Lamentations. Uh, all this poetry. The Bible's 30% poetry. And if you don't know that part of God, you don't know his heart. You don't know the heart of the bridegroom. That's why he says that. Sing, make music. The first three ways to get filled with the Spirit are all through music. But not just singing or singing any songs. They have to be so the songs of the Bible or songs that are just like the Bible songs. It's really important. Okay? And, you know, the Psalms are the Psalms. The hymns are passages like Philippians chapter 2. You know? Or Colossians chapter 1, there's a song in there. They were songs in the early church, and they're all about Jesus and who he is, how amazing he is. And we sing songs because when you sing, it gets embedded in your soul. Singing is the best way to learn. How did you learn your A, B, a, B C, D, E? See, I know my ABCs because I sang that song as a little kid. You can make up songs. About you could you could sing Ephesians chapter one; it would change your life. Giving thanks, and that means about everyone and everything. That's the best way to translate that. Submitting. Oh, this is the hard one. And so he goes at length. Literally, the rest of the book is about that. I think that's my opinion. But we're only going to talk about wives and husbands, and then I'll have a little word for the singles before we take communion together. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, awesome. Sorry if I'm so excited. I love this stuff. All right, so he, the, the last one is submit. You're not going to be filled with the Spirit unless you surrender. It's not easy. That's what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had to re-decide to be crucified. Ooh, there's a little poem for you. He had to re-decide again, and it took probably three hours of prayer and crying and tears. You can't wait to feel surrendered to be surrendered. You'll never be surrendered. Jesus didn't feel like going to the cross. He didn't feel like it. If he, if he was waiting for that, we still wouldn't have a Savior. Now, he struggled and he wrestled, and he asked for help. No one was there to help him, even his best friends. But submitting is vital. The Holy Spirit works through raw obedience, whether you feel like it or not. That's really important. You're not going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're not going to get crucified unless you start pursuing crucifixion. Like when your wife hurts your feelings, you, have, you, you, could, you could ignore it, you could get mad about it, bitter about it, and slash back. Or you can do the opposite of what you feel. And that goes two ways, right? right. Okay? And so, but I don't feel like it. Well, put your big boy britches on and do what's right. That's what Jesus would say to you. All right. Let's talk about wives and husbands. 
because he gets really practical here about how to be an image bearer, how to create oneness in the home. And you know, who we are at home is who we really are. Yeah, we can fake it at church, but you can't fake it at home, not for very long. Boy, when your kids become teenagers, they figure you out in a hurry. Oh my gosh. Don't let Stevie tell you stories when that's not allowed. <laughs> okay. All right. I think we have time. I've got to be done in seven or eight minutes, right? Is that right? Okay. Doing good. So, uh, verse 21, he says, And further, this is the last way to be filled with the Holy Spirit, crucified by the Holy Spirit. Let's just say that. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Surrender to your God-given roles. What is your role? And then he's going to talk about husbands and wives and, and the rest of the family, too. But we won't go into that. We won't go into chapter 6. He addresses wives first. I'm not sure why. I want to know why, but maybe because the church is supposed to be like the wife. The wife is supposed to be a paradigm for the church. A wife is supposed to respond to Jesus and her husband the way the church responds to Jesus. She's, you lady wives are to respond like the bride of Christ should respond to Jesus. Now it's harder for you because your husband isn't Jesus, is he? <laughs> it's really hard sometimes because sometimes he's really not much like Jesus at all. And it's really hard for women that are married to non-Christian husbands. 1 Peter chapter 3 addresses that. This is not easy stuff. That's why Paul writes, he says, you know, in most cases, or in a lot of cases, maybe that's better said, in a lot of cases it's better to stay single. You know, the Bible says that. Because marriage can be really hard because you have to kind of be extra crucified because you're, 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 in the closest possible proximity with another sinner. It's, it's the, the, the level of intimacy is the boundaries are like taken away pretty much. And so it's harder to be married than it is to be single. You know, I'm not, hopefully the singles aren't getting a bad attitude toward me, but that's what the Bible says. But I'll say some more to the singles. I Hopefully it will encourage you. Anyway, wives, for wives, now, verse 22 says, for wives, that means it's written to the wives, husbands. Husbands love to quote this scripture, but it's for the wives. Your scripture is in verse 25. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Uh, he is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to your husbands and everything. And that's exactly what it says in the Greek. <laughs> now, again, that's why ladies, single ladies, be very careful who you marry. You marry someone that's not spiritual, you're, you're asking for misery. Find a guy that basically lives the book of Proverbs, because the book of Proverbs is all about what should a man look like? Now, that's all I'm at. It's just a teaser. Okay, but seriously, find that guy. And if, if you don't find a guy at least going in that direction, stay single. You'd be happier. Okay? All right? 
because th- this passage is serious. You, you, you have to embrace this role. Now, originally, this was beautiful because it started out with Adam and Eve, and Adam was amazing for a while. He was perfect. He was selfless. He was just like Jesus. We don't know how long. Genesis 2 and 3, it looks like they were married for like 10 minutes and then they fell, but it could have been decades. But now you find someone that's really serious about being like Jesus. And then you can feel safe under his leadership because he's selfless. He's kind. He's un- he, loved, he will love you unconditionally. You see? He won't get tired of loving you. He won't numb out because you're not all that you want to be or should be as a wife. He won't numb out. And if he does, he gets back on the... He shoulders his cross. That's what it... See, I'm already talking to the husband, so let's go ahead and talk to him. Verse 25, for husbands... This means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. That is the most daunting passage in the entire Bible, if you're a husband. He doesn't say, well, it should be at least within the same hemisphere as loving. No, he says, you you need to love just like Jesus. I probably should end the sermon right now. Let the Bible speak for itself. But I got five more minutes, so I'm not. <laughs> he did this to present her as, to himself as a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she would be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. He's just trying to make it really practical now. You love your body. You know, when you're hungry, you go, I want a hot dog, you know? Or when you're tired, oh, it's time to go to sleep. You take care of your own body. Normal people do that. And he says, man, you need to be in tune to your wife. Is she tired? Is she weary? Is she hurting? Men were actually created to be nurturers. We say that about women, but men were actually created to nurture. We go, I don't know how to do that. Well, if you've been married for a while, it's time to learn. That's what he's saying. And man, I went, oh my gosh, I, I was a terrible nurturer for Kelly for many years. And I'm trying now. I'm getting a little better. I wish she would have went. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, pull the string here. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, that's your cue. We practice that, Kelly. <laughs> Uh, for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself because God made you one, Matthew 19. No one hates his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. We're his body and he cares for us. Sometimes he doesn't feel like it, but he does. And we are members of his body. And here's the group. One, one theologian said this is the greatest passage in the whole New Testament. And as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united as one. Like that quote, this is a great mystery, a profound mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife, each wife, must respect, I would put in there, profusely admire her husband, because you can respect somebody and not admire them. 
people in the military do it all the time. Yes, sir. Can't stand that pig. You know, people do that all the time. But so here, let me summarize and then we'll finish her up and take communion. Men and husbands were created by God to be a safe place for women or wives. Married or not, men are, are called to protect. Adam was created long before Eve, and, he was, and God said, listen, you need to guard the guardian and make sure that slimy serpent doesn't come in here. He never should have been in there. And so men, you protect, whether married or not. We could be a church full of singles, not one married person here, and be just as much image bearers as if we were a church full of marrieds. If the men were the guys who were like, the serpent's not coming in that door. Not going to affect and definitely not going to pester our women. And those young men would treat those women with absolute purity. First Timothy 5.2. And the women would feel safe and probably end up all getting married. Okay, men were created to be a safe place. Women, and this is what Ezer, the Hebrew word in Genesis 2.18 actually means, were created to be a place of strength for the men so they could continue to protect the women. Women were created to be a place of strength. And it goes back to how Eve was created. Eve was created unique. No other living being was created like Eve. All the female and male animals and Adam himself were created out of dirt. <laughs> Boom, alive. Everything was created out of dirt except Eve. Eve was the only living being not created from scratch. God took something out of Adam's side. Hebrew doesn't actually say rib. He took something out of Adam's side, some goo out of Adam. <laughs> And he took that goo and he built a woman, a person perfectly crafted to strengthen a man. Intellectually, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Beautiful. Beautiful. And that's really what this passage is trying to say because it draws on all those other passages that talk about marriage in the Bible especially the Old Testament passages, okay? We're going to have communion now. The big question for today for all of us, are we living the crucified life so we can be a place that creates oneness in the family of God or within our marriages? Let's pray together.